me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, as we continue our series in the book of Luke. This morning, we are in Luke, chapter 2, verses 41 to 52. Luke 2, 41 to 52. And if you turn to page 5 in your bulletin, You'll see an outline for our time together as well as on the screen in front of you. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended... As they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But when they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together this morning. Father, thanks now for this text. We pray that as we think about these words from the Lord Jesus, And as we think together about why Luke put this in his gospel in this way, that you would be glorified, that we would be strengthened and encouraged. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. The opening chapters of Luke's gospel have been filled with numerous voices announcing the coming of God's Messiah into the world. We've heard from angels repeatedly. We've heard from old men. We've heard from a young woman and from an older woman. We've even heard from some people who within their culture, within their society, would have been viewed as non-people. All of these voices have come together to tell us of the arrival of the long-awaited Messiah. This morning, however, we hear for the very first time from Jesus himself. Dr. Luke carefully chooses this one story as he concludes his introduction to not only the Gospel of Luke, but also to the book of Acts. And we need to pause and consider this for just a bit. Jesus begins his uh, public ministry at age And so from the time in which he was born until he's 30 years old, 
these are the only recorded words of Jesus in the entire Bible. Matthew doesn't tell us anything about Jesus growing up. Neither does Mark. John begins with him being the eternal word, uh, back in eternity past, now become flesh. These are the only words we have from the Lord Jesus Christ from the time he was born until he was 30. So why these words? Why pick this? I mean, surely Jesus did something cooler at the dinner table, like took the five loaves and two fishes and turned them into a bigger breakfast. Maybe we could have recorded, we Luke could have recorded something like that. And there are books. For example, there's uh, an apocryphal book called the Gospel of Thomas, which has lots of stories about young Jesus doing things that sound more like magician's tricks than what we read in our text for this morning. So why this story? Why these words? Well, if you look at your outline this morning, you see something there called the big idea. In one sentence, hopefully, this is what the sermon is about. So here it is for this morning. Jesus alone will interpret his life and ministry. Jesus alone will interpret his life and ministry. Three points we want to make this morning. The first one is this. Let's not miss what Luke is doing. Let's not miss what Luke is doing. Now, let's remember, as we've already said, that Luke uses the first two chapters of his gospel to introduce, to kind of introduce themes that are going to show up not only in the gospel of Luke, but also throughout the book of Acts. So he's this morning now concluding this particular introduction. We're going to get into, as it were, the gospel proper as we start in chapter three next week. When I was in seminary, one of the things that we like to talk about, as particularly as seminarians, we were just sort of wired this way, was we wanted to talk a lot about the theology that were in particular Gospels. And so coming up as I read the Gospel of Luke, I always had an eye and an ear for, well, how is this particular bit of Lucan theology unique? What is Luke contributing to the picture of Jesus in terms of his theology that's different from Matthew or different from Mark, because John's different from everybody. But what I've come to understand and appreciate is that Luke, as an educated man of letters and as a fantastic writer, Luke is letting us know what he wants to emphasize, not through a kind of theological treatise, but he does it using literary devices and literary terms. Here's what I mean. What Luke is doing in our text for this morning is he's giving us a foreshadowing. He's letting us know that what we see in Jesus at age 12 is what we're going to see of Jesus throughout his entire life and ministry and the similarities between this beginning story of Jesus' life and the end of Jesus' life are too obvious to miss. Note we're told in verse 41 that it's during the Passover 
that the family goes up to Jerusalem. Now, Passover was the annual feast in which God's people remembered and celebrated the fact that God had delivered them. That through the blood of a lamb put over the the doorposts of, of the door of believing households, the destroyer would pass over them. Hence the term Passover. They would also remember then their delivery out of bondage, out of slavery in Egypt, the way that God had redeemed and delivered his people. And so like other devout families uh, from Nazareth, they all get together and they're going to carpool, right? The caravan down to, to, uh, to Jerusalem. They celebrate the Passover and they're going to start and come back. Now, let's recall that when we get to the end of Luke's gospel, the events that are going to transpire uh, ultimately and are going to lead to the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, all of that happens during Passover. So this very first recorded event occurs during Passover. The very last recorded event in Luke's gospel is going to be during Passover. A note also, Luke gives us this really interesting, but sort of, we're kind of going, well, why, why tell us this other than to let us know that his parents are really, really ticked off at him. They searched for him, according to verse 46, for three days. Huh. Well, that's a kind of random number. I mean, it's a long time. You'd think at some point they'd just hit the track my iPhone app and figure out where he was. But no, for three days they search for him. At the end of the book, we're going to learn that for three days, Jesus was also missing. He was in a tomb. This all of this happens because he's in the temple amidst the teachers. And we're told in verse 47 that those who hear him are amazed at his understanding and his answers. Well, at the end of his life, he again is going to be amidst, he's going to be in the temple amidst the teachers. They're going to be amazed, not at his depth of knowledge, but they're going to be confounded and angry. They're going to be hurling insults at him. And then it's interesting, isn't it, that in his answer to uh, his parents, he says, hey, didn't you know that it's ne- it is necessary? In the Greek, the, the idea of it being necessary is emphatic. In fact, it starts. He doesn't say, did you not know? It's, it says, it's necessary. Didn't you know that? Remember Jesus at the end of his life as he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus asks the Father, he says, Hey, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus' entire life, as we're going to see, is going to be fueled and driven by uh, this kind of necessary obedience to his Father's will. I love the way uh, that my old Greek professor, David Garland, put it. He says this, in the next recorded celebration of the Passover at the end of the gospel, the destroyer will not pass over this firstborn son. No, he will die on a cross. 
Now, this becomes important because there are schools of thought as you get into the Gospels. There are people who want to say that Jesus didn't really know he was the Messiah. And that Jesus came in and he just kind of went with the flow. And it's like, hey, there's some people over there and they need to be healed. That sounds like a good idea. Why don't you go do that, Jesus? Okay, I'll go do that. And hey, uh, here's some stuff I've been thinking about. So let me sit down and tell you about it. And they will try to tell us that even at the very end of his life, Jesus went to Jerusalem thinking that he could uh, bring about this great reformation of the temple and this great reformation of Israel's worship. And in the end, everybody was going to kind of get together, hung it out, and sing Kumbaya. That Jesus didn't go to Jerusalem with the intense uh, and, and uh, very intent on being crucified. That Jesus' life and Jesus' death, it's this fantastic tragedy to quote, uh, a later 20th century prophet, Jesus fought the law and the law won. But Luke wants us to understand from the very beginning, the Lord Jesus came in order to die. And the foreshadowing that he gives us in this particular text, he's letting us know exactly how the end of the book is going to go. Here will be Jesus again at the Passover in the temple, in the midst of the teachers, doing what is necessary for obedience to God's will. And for three days, you won't see him. Luke is using foreshadowing to let us know that nothing that's going to happen in Jesus' life was by accident. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't happen chance. It wasn't karma, good, bad, or indifferent, and it was not the luck of the draw. That brings us then to our second point, and that Jesus then speaks for the first time. Jesus speaks for the first time. Now, what's interesting is prior to uh, Jesus' little, uh, this one verse that he speaks in verse uh, 40, 49, we have not heard from Jesus We've heard about Jesus from angels and angelic choirs, from elderly godly men. We know all about God's Messiah coming into the world. Here's how one commentator put it. He said, previously others have interpreted the meaning of events concerning Jesus and his life. But from now on, he alone is going to do this. Jesus is going to tell us why his life is significant. Jesus is going to tell us what it is that he came to do. Jesus is going to tell us what it is that obedience to the will of the Father is going to look like. Jesus is going to make sure, for example, that the disciples understand, hey, here are these parables, here are these wonderful stories I'm going to tell you, and here's what they mean, and here's their significance. But from here on out, it will be Jesus and Jesus alone who's going to do this. And this becomes important. Because as we move through the book, we're going to see lots of people who think it's their job to tell Jesus what he ought to be doing. His mom and his brothers are going to show up and they're going to try to take him away because they think he's out of his mind. And Jesus is going to say those words about, hey, wait, 
Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Even the disciples, that group of lovable knuckleheads that he calls to himself from time to time, they're going to pull him aside and be like, hey, dude, uh, let's rethink this. This isn't what you think it ought to be. And Jesus alone is going to interpret the meaning of events concerning his life. Now, you're saying, well, Pastor, that's great. I'm not really sure what it has to do with me, though. Well, uh, if you, for about a week, say, got to be a pastor and someone called you and they said, hey, I'd love to have coffee or could we have lunch because I want to talk about a few things, and you do, and you sit down, and they immediately uh, begin the conversation with something like this. You know, Pastor, you said this in the sermon, and that's fine. But I got to tell you, I like to think of Jesus in this way. Well, good for you. I'm glad that you like to think of Jesus in a particular way. But you and I aren't the folks who speak. Well, I, let me rephrase that. I do speak for Jesus. Uh, most days I wish I didn't, but I do. But we aren't the ones who are the final interpreters of what Jesus' life and ministry means. He is. Did you note the response of his mom? Look at verse 48. Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Here's Jesus being obedient to the will of his father, and it distresses the woman who loves him probably the most. Well, listen, if Jesus being obedient to the mission and to the call of God the Father on his life distresses his mom. When you come to the Gospels and you read something about Jesus that you don't like, guess what? You're not alone. See, if you read through the Gospels and nothing you read about Jesus distresses you, then let me just say this lovingly. You're reading it wrong. You're reading it wrong. Jesus doesn't care that you like this part about his ministry and this other part about his ministry. What Jesus is concerned about is being obedient to the will of his Father. And when Jesus is obedient to the will of his Father, even those who love him most are in great distress. There's another interesting thing that's going on here, though, uh, in the Greek already mentioned that he starts with, it's necessary. Didn't you know that? But uh, the word house that is at the very end of verse 49 in the ESV, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Uh, the word house actually is not in the Greek. The translator supplied it because the context seemed to fit it, but it literally reads uh, like this. I must be in my father's. Father's what? And that's why the translator said, hmm, well, at this point, he's in the temple, so let's say my father's house. That makes the most sense. I think, though, and that's not a bad translation, I think, though, what's going on is that Luke is being purposefully ambiguous. As we go through Luke's gospel, we're going to see that the singular passion of Jesus' life is 
was to do his Father's will for him. Jesus came not to do his own works, but to do the works that his Father had given him. Jesus came not to speak his own words, but to speak the words that his Father had given him. Jesus came to die, even though he didn't want to, but it was the will of his Father. Every part of Jesus' life is lived in and centered upon his relationship to his Father. There was never a point in Jesus' life in which he would have gone, okay, well, yeah, I know, I know this is what my Father's will is, but I want to do this. I came across an interesting quote this week. Uh, some of the church fathers, some of the mystics, used to define sin in this way. They would say that the root of sin is thinking that somehow we have nothing to do with God. God doesn't care how I live my life. God doesn't care what I think. God doesn't care how I speak. God doesn't care what I do. That I can somehow go out and live my life as though God did not exist. I don't have anything to do with him. And the response to that then is uh, repentance is a part of it to go, well, no, I understand that I, indeed I'm going to be held accountable to God, that he's the creator and he is going to judge all of us. But the other response to that, you think about that, it's, it's a sort of, um, we put it this way, that's a kind of negative response. But the positive response is to this, is to say, no, as the psalmist says, God, I want to love you with my whole heart. I want to understand that there's no part of my life in which I can say, I have nothing to do with you. Jesus understood that. Jesus said, hey, it's necessary for me to be in my Father's house, will, you name it. Jesus was whole heartedly committed and devoted to being obedient to his father. Well, friends, if being a Christian means that we're trying to be more and more Christ-like, then I think this kind of wholeheartedness is something that we too ought to be seeking to cultivate. Because it's easy, isn't it? It's easy to look at our lives and to look at what's going on and to think in this particular instance, well, yeah, uh, I know the Bible says X, Y, Z, but. And so oftentimes I think we find ourselves trying to find exceptions. We try to find loopholes. Instead of asking the question, God, what would it mean for me to follow you with my whole heart? What would it mean if, like Jesus, suddenly I could say, yeah, I'm all in? And the issue is not, can I do this? Can I not do this? But the issue is, hey, um, if I'm doing this, does, does this contribute to my searching after God with my whole heart? There was a point, uh, and my uh, kids aren't here, so I won't embarrass them, so that's okay, uh, 
it's better when I can, but we'll, we'll take it. Uh, but there was a point in which when I was uh, pursuing their mom, uh, it became pretty obvious that no, this is it and uh, nobody else is on the table. So it wasn't a question as I was uh, pursuing Amy. It wasn't a question of, well, um, could I talk to this girl over here? Or what about that girl? Or could I talk? No. I wasn't worried about the rules of, well, if I talk to this person uh, in my gospels class, is Amy going to be offended by that? No. Because at the end of the day, I was all in on her. I was wholeheartedly pursuing uh, this woman who would eventually become my wife. Well, friends, that's the picture that Jesus is for us in terms of his relationship with his father. He's not trying to parse out where's the line and how close can I get to it. No, Jesus is committed entirely. He says, didn't you know it's necessary that I'm going to be in my father's house, that I'm going to be pursuing my father's will. Jesus' entire life is going to be characterized by just that. And if we are Jesus' followers, our lives should be characterized by that as well. What are you doing? I'm seeking to wholeheartedly pursue my relationship with the triune God. I'm not worried about, can I do this on Sunday? Or is this uh, too short? Or do good Christian people do X? No. The question that I'm asking is, does this thing, does this object, does this whatever, does this action, does this thought, do these words aid or detract from my desire to wholeheartedly pursue my Heavenly Father? Thirdly, then, we need to see the absolute necessity of the Holy Spirit. We need to see the absolute necessity of the Holy Spirit. It's interesting, uh, Luke uses this little triplet of ways that people are responding to Jesus. Not just the audacity of uh, not being in the family caravan as they're heading back to Nazareth, and not just the audacity of sitting in the temple among the doctors of the church, as it were, but uh, just their response to Jesus himself. We're told that they were astounded, that they were shocked, verse 48, and that his parents, the people who knew him best, did not understand. Now, let's stop here for just a moment. One of the things that I love about this particular account is it reminds us uh, Jesus was indeed fully human. And I think as parents who at times, you know, you've gone to a store and you had your kids with you and you turn your back on them and you're like, where did they go? And for like five minutes, you're freaking out because you think you've lost your children. It's probably just dads who do that, but um, it happens. Well, here are the two people who actually know who he is. It's like, can you imagine? Like, Dude, we lost the Messiah. We had one job. And we lost them as like for three days. We don't know where dude is. Like just wandered. How do you lose the Messiah? And so it's interesting, isn't it? They're astounded. They're shocked. 
and they don't understand. Note that in none of those responses do we get this idea that they worship. That they bow the knee. And let's remember, Mary and Joseph have been told that he is Christ, Savior, and Lord. The angels told them this. The shepherds told them this. Simeon told them this. Mary was told this by Elizabeth. But no one here is worshiping him. No one here is bowing the knee. No one here is confessing, as Peter is later going to confess, you are the Christ. No, they have uh, very strong responses. They're not necessarily bad responses. But they're not the response that we want. And that's going to be a theme that we're going to see as we go through the book of Luke and even into the book of Acts. The 12 guys that Jesus spends the most time with, that he invests the most time with, you know what, at the end Uh, not just at the end of his life, but after he has been resurrected and before he's ascended into heaven, they still don't get it. Keep your finger in Luke chapter 2, but turn with me over uh, just a few pages to the book of Luke. Excuse me, uh, the book of Acts. I apologize. Book of Acts. The book of Acts, chapter 1, and let's start in uh, verse 4. Uh, first three verses, we're told Jesus, uh, first of all, he's going to let Theophilus know, hey, this is part two. Jesus has been hanging out for 40 days. Verse 4. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he had said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with thee. Holy Spirit, not many days from now. Okay, so here are the disciples. They've seen the resurrection. They put fingers in in wounds, right? They've seen him pass through doors. They've seen him eat fish. All the really cool things now were towards the end of the 40 days. They get it, right? Verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel. Guess what? They don't get it. Three years. Three years they've watched the guy. Three years they've traveled with him. They've they've eaten meals with him. They've uh They've stopped and, you know, camped rough. They've done the whole thing. They've watched him for three entire years. They've heard him teach. They've heard him teach repeatedly. They've seen all the miracles. They've been there for the whole thing. They've heard people say, yes, I am the Christ. And they still, after the resurrection, are asking the question, is this the time you are going to restore the kingdom to Israel. 
What changes? Well, what changes when we get to Acts chapter 2 is the coming of the Holy Spirit. Let's remember, Luke isn't just introducing his gospel. He's introducing the book of Acts to us. It should not surprise us, apart from the work of the Spirit, that people who know the facts about Jesus, people who may even know his true identity, that they don't get it, and they're not going to get it until the Spirit comes. And so we see already in this introductory part of Luke's gospel that the Holy Spirit is absolutely necessary. It's why Jesus says to the disciples in verse 4, wait for the promise of the Father. Because apart from the Spirit, you're not going to get the Son right. You'll be astounded. You'll be shocked. But you won't understand apart from the work of the Spirit, who will impress upon us that He is Christ and Savior and Lord. In a few moments, we're going to come together around a table. And at the heart of that table is a very, very basic confession. The table, uh, Jesus tells us and Paul tells us, is about remembering and it's about remembering that Jesus Christ alone is our Savior. We also, as we come to the table, look forward to the consummation of the fact that he is Lord. For this table points us forward to a table that is yet to come. After Jesus returns in glory and in power and in judgment, then we're told there's coming a great feast. And at that great feast, this consummate, this wedding feast, in which the relationship between God and his people is going to be consummated, there we will see Christ's lordship fully expressed and fully realized. But until then, he gives us the table. Until then, he gives us the opportunity to confess that he is Savior and Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for uh, this wonderful uh, book and for the, the work of Dr. Luke. I, yes, this is, this is your very word. It's inspired uh, your spirit, inspired Luke to write. But man, dude was a good writer. And we want to thank you for that. You could have given us a bullet point of things we needed to believe about Jesus. You could have uh, given us some sort of theological essay on essentials of, of the person and work of the Lord Jesus that we needed to embrace, but you didn't. You gave us stories, and you gave us really, really good stories, and we bless you for that. And Father, I pray this morning that through these stories, our desire to pursue you wholeheartedly would increase. That as uh, the Lord Jesus confessed to his family, so too we would confess, hey, didn't you know it's necessary for me to be about my father's work, my father's business, my father's will. Lord, we pray that this week that would be increasingly true of us as well. For we ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.